Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. Hello, and welcome to Nevermore Hollows, where you never know what might materialize out of the darkness to make war on your soul. It's like the good book says, our real war is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness, and against the spiritual hosts of wickedness. Therefore, we should always be on guard, ready to stand, ready to fight. I am Lafayette Faust. You know me by now, and you know what I do, albeit from a secret location. If you'd like to know more about what's going on in Nevermore Hollows, things that I can't tell you here, things that I can't show you here, I invite you to our Nevermore Hollows Facebook page and our Nevermore Hollows Instagram. Tonight, I need to tell you about an incident that happened to our two favorite 12-year-old boys, Rory Boudreaux and Stevie Muse. Just the other night, they were on their way to Romero's Comics and Games when they heard slurring music coming from just over a hill in one of the vast fields that are scattered around the dark countryside. Of course, these two adventurous boys are always willing to take a stand against the paranormal beings that populate Nevermore Hollows. But on this night, they bore witness to a calling card of sorts, an announcement from a horrifying little monkey who was last seen creating murder and chaos at Winona's Waffle Hut a few months back. What they find just over the hill is a merry-go-round that must have been designed in hell, and the monkey, who has decided to call himself Psycho Juju, makes it clear that he has some terrible plans for Nevermore Hollows, plans that will surely live up to the name he has taken for himself. So... 
with this ominous information stabbed deep into your heart, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. It was one of those mid-September Friday nights in the deep south where instead of feeling the nip of fall, the humidity was still high enough to make one feel as if they were draped in a warm, wet blanket. Rory Boudreau and Stevie Muse rode their rusty bikes through the Pink Flamingos trailer park, where they lived, on their weekly ride into the town of Nevermore to Romero's Comics. The park had been established in 1957, during the beginning of the Space Age, and was laid out in a neat grid of colorful trailers, many now in various states of disrepair and decay. The narrow streets were named with a nod to the Space Age, such as Apollo Lane and Gemini 7 Circle, and were littered with cracks and potholes, making it look as if an invading army had rained mortar shells down on the park in an attempt to rid the earth of its blight. To most people, the Pink Flamingos trailer park would seem like a depressing place to grow up. It was inhabited by the fringe and the forgotten and those who wanted to disappear. At the entrance to the park stood a gaudy sign. It sported two giant flamingos and a single palm tree. The name of the park was written in cursive and was outlined in the same pink neon as the flamingos. At night, when the sign was ablaze, some of the letters burned brighter than the others. If you read only those letters, the sign would read, In Flames Trailer Park. And to everyone in the town of Nevermore and its surrounding countryside, collectively known as Nevermore Hollows, the thought of the park going up in flames seemed like a good idea. But for these two 12-year-old boys, living in the trailer park was a place of wide-eyed wonder and perilous adventure. This summer alone, they had nearly died at the hands of the ghost inhabiting Trailer 66, had found an old jar containing a demon's head, and had been chased by a horde of undead river monsters resurrected by the Brousseau sisters, who were in essence three dim-witted trailer park witches. And on top of all that, they had befriended an old Russian named Ivan Ivanovich, the park's custodian. What made their relationship with Ivan so cool was that he knew about the paranormal things that happened in Nevermore Hollows in general, and more specifically, the trailer park. Ivan had a secret past that he had not yet divulged, and that made him even cooler. All this made them forget their fatherless, poverty-stricken lives. So, the boys pedaled through the park, heading for the entrance, where they would turn onto the county road that would take them into town. The Mighty Snail comic I subscribed to is supposed to be there tonight, Stevie said, wiping sweat from his face. Stevie lived alone with his mother after his dad left them. His mom worked nights at Winona's Waffle Hut just up the road a bit. He had been lonely until Rory and his mom moved to the trailer park back in the spring. You gonna have to let me read that one, Rory said, glancing over at his friend. Rory had spent all of his twelve years of life in New Orleans. His mama was Creole, and his daddy had been African-American. 
His daddy had died covered in fat, seeping sores after he had stood up to a local voodoo priestess named Sister Kulev, which meant Sister Snake in Creole. She had been caught casting dark spells on local school children and had stopped after his daddy stood up to her. He was proud of his daddy and vowed to not be afraid to stand up to evil, even if it killed him. Of course, Stevie said. Because their mothers could not afford to give them very big allowances, and the fact they earned only a little money by doing various chores for some of the folks living in the trailer park, they chose to share comics to save their hard-earned money. I'm glad Mighty Snail is getting successful. I can't wait to see if they defeat General Meg. Yeah, that would be fun to see, Rory said. But General Meg be one big scary dude. They could have gone to Romero's earlier in the week, but chose to go on Friday evenings because Romero stayed open late and always had something special going on. Tonight, Romero's had an artist and writer of Mighty Snell signing autographs. I hope that I can get Mr. Overlord, the artist, to sign my copy, Stevie said. Rory looked down at his watch and noted that it was going on 6.30. It would take another 30 minutes on their bikes to get into town. We need to get going if we're going to get there by 7. It was just beyond twilight, but not yet full-on dark when they rode out of the park. The neon sign flickered to life with an angry buzz and cast them in a pink and teal glow. They turned onto the dark county road, flicked on the flashlights taped to their handlebars, and pedaled toward town. They rounded a curve and saw a pulsing glow in the field to their left. Rory pulled to a stop and stood astride his bike. Stevie hesitated, riding on ahead, then swerved back around and stopped beside his friend. What do you think is over there, Stevie? Rory asked. Stevie squinted. The colors seemed to be coming from something just beyond a small hill about a quarter mile back from the road. Not sure, he replied. Around here it could be literally anything. Rory nodded as he watched the luminous blue fade to violet and then to yellow. Dim colors remind me of a carnival. Stevie failed to hide the shudder that skittered up his spine. We've never had a carnival in Nevermore that I can remember. And to be honest, Rory, the idea of a carnival in this place creeps me out. Rory watched the colors fade from yellow and swell into green. He turned to Stevie. They never been a carnival here in Nevermore? Really? Stevie shrugged. At least not since I've been here. In fact, I've never even heard anybody talk about a carnival. They both watched the lights change from green to purple. Then Stevie said, Listen. Rory held his breath and strained. After a moment, he said, I don't hear anything. Stevie nodded. Right. There's nothing. No crickets, no cicadas. And that's Mr. Beck's field. He easily has 200 head of cows. I don't hear them either. Both boys stood in the dark on the side of the road, watching the lights and feeling the eeriness of the moment. 
the lights continued to slowly change and pulse. The boys looked at each other, Stevie's eyes wide with wonder and a touch of fear. Rory's eyes filled only with the desire for adventure. Stevie was the more cautious of the two, but by no means was he a pansy. He liked to say that fear shouldn't rule your decisions, just inform them. He knew their friendship worked because Rory was usually the one who got them into the adventures, while he kept them level-headed enough that they could get themselves out. You know we gotta see what be over that hill, Rory said, and Stevie knew that he was right. I won't be able to sleep tonight if we don't, Stevie said, and while they both felt the tinge of fear tickle their backs, the call to know the unknown was too strong to ignore. They set about cutting loose their flashlights with their pocket knives and leaned their bikes against the barbed wire fence. They stepped over the prickly fence and into the field. Rory shined his light to the left, and Stevie shined his to the right. Usually they be cows all over this field, Rory said. I wonder where they be. Stevie shrugged and decided to be the one to lead them to the top of the hill. He pointed the light before them and began walking. Rory followed, shining his light around, looking for the cows. They walked about 50 yards, and the beams of their lights fell on a long row of cows standing at the bottom of the hill. Look at that, Stevie said. They stopped 20 yards from the row of cows and shone their lights back and forth, trying to see how many were in the line. They is easily a hundred, Rory said. What be wrong with them? The cows were neatly spaced three feet apart in a razor-straight row. The cows all looked up at the pulsing lights, transfixed, no movement whatsoever. They did not flick their tails. They did not shuffle back and forth or side to side, and they did not make a sound. It was as if they were dead and had been set in this long line by a disturbed taxidermist for some twisted reason. I don't know, Stevie said, but I've never seen cows act this way. It's like they've been hypnotized. Rory looked up to the top of the hill at the lights that now pulsed above them. It could be that they is hypnotized. With them lights pulsing like that, I guess, I guess it could happen. Maybe we need to be careful and not look directly at the lights for too long, Stevie said. I agree with that, Rory said. He stepped between two cows and headed up the hill. Stevie took a moment to shine the light on the face of one of the cows. The cow did not blink or even squint when the light hit its eyes. It stood, eyes focused up at the pulsing lights, its mouth hung slightly open, and its thick pink tongue lolled out. A long string of drool hung from the tip of the tongue. Stevie shone his light at the other cows and saw that none of them blinked against the light, and all of them had their tongues lolled out. He was unable to suppress a shudder. He then turned and followed Rory. They made their way up the hill in the eerie quiet. As they neared the crest, they both instinctively dropped to their hands and knees. They crawled the last few feet and lay on their stomachs and peered down on the other side, 
onto another field that stretched a half mile and ended at the edge of the towering dark trees of Dunwich Forest. Directly in the center sat a merry-go-round, as if waiting for them to board. Bright bulbs glowed and strobed and washed the field in a rainbow of neon hues. They were too far away, and the pulsing lights were positioned in such a fashion that they could not see in any real detail, but they could make out the shadows of brightly colored horses that surely inhabited the merry-go-round. Why isn't it moving? Stevie whispered. He wished that the lights were not colored and instead were white so that they could see in more detail. Rory gave him a sideways look. We come up on a creepy merry-go-round in the middle of this field, and all you wonders why it ain't be moving? Stevie shrugged. I mean, where is it getting its electricity from? It's lit up, so it has to have power, but if so, why isn't it moving or making any music? Yeah, Rory said. I see what you mean. That is strange. They lay on their stomachs looking down at the strange sight for five minutes, which was an eternity for twelve-year-old boys. Finally, Rory said, It looked like it'd be safe. I say we go get a closer look. It was Stevie's turn to be sarcastic. You mean to tell me there's a creepy merry-go-round in a field that has all those spooky lights flashing, and they have apparently hypnotized a hundred cows, and you think it looks safe to get closer? Rory nodded as he considered. Well, when you put it that way, it do sound a bit precarious to get any closer. Especially in light of all the crazy stuff we've already experienced this year, Stevie said. They sat for another eternal two minutes, each in their own thoughts. Finally, Rory said, I believe you'd be correct in all that, but we're getting pretty darn good at handling ourselves. And look at the stories we can tell because of us being bold. Stevie smiled. He was apprehensive, but the siren call of exploration was irresistible. Let's go. They both stood and slowly made their way down the hill and into the field below. As they walked, they kept glancing around, peering into the dark, looking for any threat of danger. But their eyes kept getting pulled back toward the merry-go-round and its slowly shifting multicolored lights. When they were halfway between the merry-go-round and the hill, they were able to get a little more detail. They could now make out the dark shapes of the horses. There also seemed to be other animals. That one there looked to be maybe a bear. Was that one a tiger? And that one? Was it a rhino? They pulled their eyes from the sight before them and looked at each other. Rory saw a heady curiosity in Stevie's face, and Stevie saw the gleam of excitement in Rory's eyes. They walked another 15 yards and was finally able to see more than just shadows beyond the lights and they stopped cold. Rory raised his flashlight and shone the beam on the closest merry-go-round beast, allowing them to see every detail. It was a real horse, and it was dead. 
Its eyes were sewn shut, and its mouth was wired open with its lips pulled back into a death snarl. Its teeth had been filed down into sharp points. The red and white striped pole that ordinarily would have secured a finely sculpted replica ran from the floor, through the horse's stomach, and out the top of its back and up into the ceiling. Oh man, Stevie said. The beam from Rory's light quivered in his trembling hands. He pointed the light at another one of the hulking shadow beasts. This time, it was a massive bear. It, too, was impaled by a red and white mounting post. Its eyes were missing, leaving only empty black sockets. It was missing its jaw. Stevie swept his light across the remaining beasts. There was a tiger that looked as if it had been torn apart by giant hands, then crudely sewn back together. A mummified baby elephant was missing its trunk. An ostrich with a broken neck. A gorilla with human arms sewn in place of its own. A second horse with giant wings sewn onto its body. There were other grotesqueries that made Stevie shudder. Who do you think did this to these poor animals? He asked. Rory shook his head. I bet they'd be sickos. Ain't no way one person did all this and, and got all this out here in this field. They stood for a moment, taking in the sick scene, knowing they should go away from this place, but unable to move because they were rooted in place with a twisted curiosity. Suddenly, the merry-go-round shuddered and jerked as it began to slowly turn. A slurring melody began to play from the steam organ located behind the decorative panels in its center. The boys jumped in surprise, the prickling of fear skittering up their spines as if dead, cold, crypt beetles had gotten inside their shirts. How is it moving without power? Stevie asked and he knew that the music came from an instrument known as a calliope located somewhere deep inside the merry-go-round. This is nevermore, Rory said. It'd probably be running on evil. Stevie knew his friend was right. Evil seemed to power so much here, and he and Rory seemed to come in contact with more of it than most of the townsfolk. The merry-go-round continued to slowly turn, the music dragging in its moaning melody. The colorful lights brightened so that they could see the macabre zoo of dead animals begin to heave up and down as the poles that speared them began to move on their galloping cranks. Oh, Stevie gasped as the horse with the sewn shut eyes turned its head toward them. That ain't right. Rory said as the ostrich with the broken neck came around on the red and white striped pole that pierced through its spine. It gave a feeble flap of its wings. Its head was flopped over at an unnatural angle, but its eyes glowed orange like magma. It was able to jerk its eyes toward the boys and snapped its beak at them as if it hungered for their flesh. Next came the tiger that had been torn apart and sewn back together by someone with a sick mind. Its legs quivered and jerked as it tried to walk, though it was held three feet above the merry-go-round platform by its own striped pole. It gave a hungry growl. It suddenly struck Stevie that they should run. Then he realized that he could not. 
that he was frozen in place by some force. He was able to look over at Rory and saw that he too was unable to move anything other than his head. The boys realized that they were being compelled to witness the gruesome turn of the merry-go-round. They could see the fear in each other's eyes. While they had survived a dozen paranormal encounters during the summer, they had never been seized by an unknown force that rendered them immobile. Rory considered their predicament. In every single one of their encounters, the monsters and ghosts all moved with murderous intent. While their current situation was terrifying, it did not have the feel of imminent death. Whatever was behind this bizarre show did not have murder on its mind, at least not yet. This seemed as if someone were making a demented statement. Why you be doing this to us? He asked aloud. There was no response. The merry-go-round continued its slow turn. The lights pulsed and swam from purple to blue to green to violet and then to red. The calliope continued to groan out its dissonant melody. I know this song, Stevie said. It was difficult to catch the correct pulse of the melody due to it playing in that slurring drag. He closed his eyes and strained to hear, feeling if he could figure out the song, he would gain some understanding to why this was happening. I know you be making this all happen, Rory said aloud, again trying to communicate with the presence behind the merry-go-round. But we ain't scared. Shh, Stevie hissed, straining to hear. Instead of rising and falling with poetic cadence, the song wailed and moaned as if in a dying gasp. The merry-go-round's circular platform rotated around a center constructed of brightly colored panels adorned with scenes and filigreed scrollwork. Rory's eyes landed on the panel facing them, which on a normal merry-go-round would be adorned with idyllic scenes of simpler times. The scene depicted on this panel was one of carnage and destruction. A skeletal specter with obsidian horns sat on a throne atop a pyramid of broken bodies. Stevie, he said, look at that panel. Stevie still had his eyes closed, straining on the warped tune. It was almost there. If Rory would just be quiet. Shh. Rory noticed that the panel had an antique and ornate door handle. It slowly turned. Stevie? He said, his voice starting to shiver. Something, something's coming. Suddenly, the song popped into Stevie's head. It's amazing grace, he said aloud. He still felt as if there was some profound understanding that eluded him. What does that matter? Rory said, his eyes fixed on the slowly turning doorknob. Stevie opened his eyes. The melody, though slurring, firmly in his head. I don't know, he said, but it does matter. Look, Rory said. Stevie turned his head just in time to see the panel swing open, revealing a deep darkness. 
He felt as if he were looking through the doorway to the proverbial pit where the serpent would spend eternity after his defeat. Then, a bloody light flashed on, backlighting a small figure, making it a black silhouette. What is that? Stevie asked. It looks like a monkey, Rory said. Both boys tried to move, but their feet were firmly planted. The dark figure stood awash in the crimson light and gave a deep laugh that seemed to be at once human and simian. <laughs> the boys shuddered. The figure stepped out of the crimson light into the slowly changing colors of the merry-go-round, and the hearts of both the boys stopped, making Rory catch his breath and Stevie to gasp. What stood before them was a capuchin monkey, though twice as large as what should be normal. Its face was smeared with red grease paint, and a black swirl had been scrawled around each of its eyes. It wore a red suit with a black bow tie. The suit had a pattern that the boys could not quite make out, but as the lights washed from blue to bright yellow, they could see that the suit was covered in tiny black pentagrams. That's the monkey our moms told us about, Stevie said. The one that came into Winona's with that scary clown. Rory nodded. The one that went and shot all them folks. <laughs> I'm glad my reputation precedes me. The monkey said as it stepped off the merry-go-round and stood before them. The boys exchanged a look. Stevie's eyes were wide. Even in the colorful glow, Rory seemed pale. What do you want? Stevie asked. He tried to move his feet, but they continued to be glued to the earth. The monkey gave a thoughtful sniff as if he were trying to figure a way to explain a grand idea to a couple simpletons. What, what do I want? He said. Well, if I'm to be completely honest, I want chaos. Screaming. Mind-bending. Visceral. Stevie tried to speak, but fear clogged his throat. He swallowed hard, then said, Why? The monkey turned its swirly-eyed gaze on Stevie. Because I... <laughs> I want to introduce myself. We already know who you is, Rory said. The monkey laughed. <laughs> no, you do not know who I am, you stupid child. That incident at Winona's was not an official <laughs> introduction. I was simply passing through with my pet. 
And I felt the vibe of that place. Of the goody two-shoes Winona and her wannabe hero sidekick, Isaac. I was drawn to that place because of their goodness. I had no plans of staying. Therefore, no need for a formal introduction. But I've spent some time here. I feel the evil that gnaws away at the souls of the folks here as it makes war on the goodness that permeates this town. I have decided I want to be part of that war. So I will be staying. And if I'm staying, I need to officially make an introduction. Why us? Stevie asked. We're just a couple kids. Why not go on TV or introduce yourself to someone in power like the mayor or something? The monkey chuckled. <laughs> oh, dear boy. You are both so much more than just a couple kids. You are the embodiment of all that is good. There is a purity in your spirits that is so delicious. And that old Russian that has befriended you, <laughs> Ivan Ivanovich, he has a dark stain on his soul that has been wiped clean. But I think I can cause him to slip back into his old ways. I do love a challenge. Rory was afraid to ask, but intuited that he needed to be as bold as possible. Okay, then. You done spoke your piece. We know that you plan on bringing a heap of chaos in our lives. Go on. We will be ready for you. <laughs> now that you know I'm going to play with you for a while before I kill you, I'll officially introduce myself. So you'll know what to call me when you curse my name during your last breaths. Let me guess. Stevie said, feeding off the boldness of his friend. It's something like Bobo or Kiki. The monkey smiled. It was full of menace and sharp teeth. <laughs> That's a good one, little Stevie. But no. I've been called many things during the thousand years that I've lived. But as much as I hate Winona and her pathetic sidekick... They used a term that night I showed up at their pathetic establishment and I've decided to adopt as my new name because it's so right on the mark. Well, then, spit it out and let's get this over with, Rory said. From this moment on, call me Psycho Juju. The undead animals began to cry out in a moaning, groaning, anguished chorus. 
Psycho Juju stepped up onto the slowly rotating merry-go-round, grabbed onto one of the red and white swirly painted poles, and used his other paw to flash the sign of the horns. The slurring music sped up into a frantic blare. The undead animals screamed and howled and shrieked. The lights flashed brighter, faster, all building into a frenzied crescendo, and then... darkness and complete silence. The boys could not see. Their ears rang with the sudden silence. It took ten, fifteen, twenty heartbeats for them to gain their senses and realize that they could now move. Where did it all go? Stevie asked. The merry-go-round with its macabre herd of zombified animals, was gone. Stevie and Rory stood alone in the dark field, tremors of fear coursing through them. They realized that they had both dropped their flashlights. They snatched them up and switched them on and shone them around the field. The only evidence that the merry-go-round or the monkey had been there was a large circular shape in the flattened grass. I figured out that song, Stevie said, after taking a breath to calm his nerves. Rory stared at the place where the merry-go-round had stood. Yeah, what was it then? Amazing Grace, Stevie said. Rory tore his eyes from the flattened grass and looked over at his friend. I wonder why he chose that song. Stevie shook his head. Then, a thought struck him. Blasphemy. Rory thought about that word. It made sense that something as evil as the beast they had just met would mock a song with such redemptive imagery. That seems right to me. And what about the name it took for itself? Stevie asked. What are we supposed to make of that? I believe that Psycho Juju is a perfect description of the darkness that has possessed that poor monkey. Stevie had not considered possession. He turned that idea over in his mind. He had come to believe in the spiritual realm, and he knew from personal experience that it was a realm filled with all manner of evil entities bent on wickedness. But for some reason he could not yet identify he did not believe that Psycho Juju was simply possessed by some evil spirit. He felt the answer was something more aberrant. Maybe, he said. Either way, we need to let Mr. Ivanovich know that Psycho Juju has basically declared war on us. How are we going to be able to prepare to fight something like Psycho Juju? Rory asked. And he seems to have a whole hell of a lot of power. Rory's last sentence conjured up the image painted on the merry-go-round's decorative panel. The specter with the obsidian horn sitting on a throne atop a pyramid of slaughtered people. And it was then that he realized that it must have been a picture of hell. I believe that maybe that's where he gets his power. Rory nodded his understanding that none of the evil beings they had faced during the past year emanated evil anywhere near the level they had felt emanating off Psycho Juju. 
I do believe you be right, he said. This place be touched by darkness, but this here be different. If Psycho Juju ain't the devil himself, then he's his right-hand man. Stevie felt that Rory had maybe found the truth of their new adversary. He turned and headed up the hill, Rory by his side. As they came down the other side, they noticed the cows were scattered about, acting as cows should. They made it to their bikes, and instead of heading into town to Romero's comics, they turned and rode back to the trailer park so they could tell Ivan Ivanovich, the man who they trusted more than any other in the world, that hell had made its way to Nevermore Hollows. <laughs>